tell you what you're listening to. Welcome to Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio with Father Richard Simon. I'm here to answer your questions. Have a question? Give us a call. 1-888-914-9149. As any question you may have about the Lord, the faith, and the church, that's 1-888-914-9149. This is, in fact, a radio show called Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio. Well, hello. Oh, dear. You know, there, there's just a lot of stuff going on in, in the in the world. Yes, yes. Let's see here. I gotta find that. Uh, the the uh, you know tomorrow is a big day. It's the March for Life, and we're really working on this. And and you know we can all be part of it. So before I jump into anything, I really really wanna draw your attention to the website uh and we have um uh you know go to relevantradio.com/fast and uh then there's look for hashtag #fast for life and uh you can join in 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 supporting spiritually uh those who are going to be marching in the cold uh on on Friday so uh the, the voices that I'm big into hashtag. I, I'm not that fond of hash, but the hashtag, okay, hashtag fast for life. And you can get a, a, a free bonus ebook, The Choice is Love, which will help you to defend our position on abortion in a reasonable and, and clear way. So go to relevantradio.com slash fast and, and, uh, and join, join in this, in this effort. So, um, and by all means, uh, pray for that that event tomorrow. And uh, and as always, we we pray for an end of abortion. Speaking of that, let's pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your Spirit; they shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. Lord, you taught the hearts of the nations by the light of the Holy Spirit. Grant us by that same Spirit to have right judgment in all things and evermore to rejoice in his comfort through Christ our Lord. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Saint Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle. Be our defense against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray. And do thou, O Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the power of God cast into hell Satan and all the evil spirits who prowl about the world seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All right, let's open the big book on the coffee table. We continue with this wonderful story of, uh, of uh, Saul and David. I want to I kind of jump at we had a bible study at uh, when i was pastor at st lambert's and uh occasionally we would end up a few verses behind where we'd started it was uh, it was i tried to model it on jeff caven's great adventure but it was more kind of a wandering in the wilderness when i did it but i digress the uh oh and thanks for your prayers my computer seems to be working this today it, it was really creepy yesterday i was talking about spiritual warfare and my computer went all higgledy piggledy so uh that's the i think that's a technical term all right, moving along here, 
um, we see that that Saul. Uh, remember, in 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 First Samuel, the fifteenth chapter, we see that that Saul commits a serious sin without realizing he's doing it. Now, we we say, you know, to commit a serious sin, you have to know that it's a sin. You have to fully intend a full turning of the will uh, and complete freedom. And, uh, well, did he really know it was a sin if, if he didn't wasn't conscious that he was sinning? There is something, one of my favorite theological categories is called invincible ignorance. <laughs> I've met a lot of people who are, never mind. They, but invincible ignorance theologically or, or spiritually is the situation in which a person is just not capable of understanding the sinfulness of something. You know, you explain, now this is why you shouldn't steal. A, B, C, D, E, I don't get it. Let me go over this again. I don't get it. Third time, I don't get it. There's some people who are incapable of of... Uh, that moral discernment and that's called invincible ignorance that is different than don't tell me i don't want to know you see if it's a sin i don't want to know that's vincible ignorance in other words ignorance that can be conquered and when you when you don't want to know uh what god wants when you've convinced yourself that it's all right uh, you know, the, the the more convincing, the I've always found the louder the argument, uh, my suspicion is the less confident the person is in his own position. If I have to yell and scream to convince you that I'm right, maybe it's because I don't think I'm right. So Saul was in this position. He was not, he was in the tribe of Benjamin. He wasn't a Levite. He wasn't a Kohen, that means a priest. And he decided to offer sacrifice because his, his uh, well, men were getting restive in one point. And then in another point, he he really had convinced himself that he had done God's will by by obliterating the Amalekites. But he didn't. And we're going to see how that comes back to bite him right in the ankle uh, at the end of his life. But he didn't, uh, he didn't put the Amalekites under the ban. He saved their king to execute in Gilgal, and, uh, which was an important uh, religious center. And um, he brought the best of the, of the sheep and the cattle and the livestock to sacrifice in Gilgal. And he was, had convinced himself that he was pious. And he wasn't. He was doing this for his own honor and glory. This should this should send chills down our spine. Uh, it, 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 that, that I think that my theological position is because I love God, when sometimes it's not because I love God, even if it's a correct position. It's because I'm an angry, self-righteous person who does not want to listen to anyone else's point of view, <laughs> or this is what I like, therefore it must be what God likes. We need constantly to pray the prayer that we read in the Psalms, Lord, from my unknown sin, deliver me. How can it be a sin if it's unknown? Well, it's unknown to my consciousness, not to my soul. Uh, that's a little different. Uh, and I really believe that's a biblical idea. So, uh, you know, that the idea of the examination of conscience and, and a humility before God is, is very important. Uh, so that's what Saul did. And Samuel came up and he said that, that rebellion is like the sin of witchcraft and, and uh, disobedience is like the sin of, of, of divination. It's an idolatry uh, because I've, I've made myself God. And uh, 
So the throne is taken from Saul. And Saul says, please just come and worship uh, the Lord with me uh, so that I, I, I don't want to be embarrassed in the presence of the people. Are you hearing what he's saying? He's, he's convicting himself of that sin. And this is all in the past. You know, that, that, that the throne was taken from him because even his idea of repentance was a matter of show. You know, I'm always railing about, about religious theater. You know, the person, the holiest person in the prayer group is clearly the one who has the biggest Bible. <laughs> and uh, the, the most pious traditionalist is the one who has the, the, the largest uh, uh, chapel veil. You know, are we doing this for the Lord or are we doing it? For appearance sake. Saul was totally into appearance sake, and he couldn't separate that from devotion to the Lord. He assumed that what was in his best interest was godly, and um, he was a complete wreck. <laughs> you know, he was a better man than David in so many ways. Uh, David, you look at the history of David, and David isn't the kind of guy you, you'd want to bring home to mother if you're a young lady. Um, he was a, a rough character and a bit of a, well, as we've read, he was Yafema Od. He was a bit of a pretty boy. Um, but he was a man after God's own heart. Why? Because he could repent. Saul could not repent. So I, I, I say all that because it just gets worse in today's reading. Uh, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousand. Saul was angry and resentful of the song. Uh, they give David tens of thousands, only thousands to me. I contrast that with John the Baptist. When, when his followers come and say, Jesus is, is baptizing more than, than you are in the Jordan. And John says, he must increase, I must decrease. In other words, if Saul had loved what God was doing, he would have said, yes, David is even better than I am. It's wonderful. God is, is conquering his enemies and using David to do it. If Saul had had that in his heart, he would have been uh, remained as king of, of, of Israel, I think. But he didn't. He thought, you know, I've got to kill him. This reminds me of uh, <clears throat> the story about when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. We read that uh, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the, the well, especially the Sadducees and the, and, the, and the scribes wanted to kill Jesus and Lazarus, too. <laughs> Doesn't it sound ridiculous to think I'm going to kill somebody who was raised from the dead? This guy's got power over life and death. Nonsense nonsense your best friend is comes and you hide in a cave for a few days and you know take a bunch of back issues of of magazines that you haven't read and you know and then ta-da you know they are raised from the dead my eye they refused to believe it they couldn't see what god was doing and saul is in the same position he couldn't see what god was doing and he was going to kill david but jonathan uh um uh, perceives what God is doing, and he realizes that he's never going to be king, but David is, and Jonathan is fine with this because it's the Lord's will. This 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 very narcissistic man who was in a position of power had a son who was better than him. It's, it's a wonderful part of the story. So so that's, I look at that and uh, uh, just marvel at it and think, boy, I lack a great deal. You know, I remember hearing the story of a, a preacher who um, uh, 
he was the church of what's happening now, and his church was packed. And then down the road a piece, another preacher moved in, set up a church, and was a better preacher than than the fellow who had preceded him. And uh, on a Wednesday night prayer meeting, he looked out, and there were only a few people in the pews. And he said, where is everybody? He said, well, they're, they're down at, at such and such's church, second church of what's happening now. And this minister said, well, let's go down there and see what the Lord is doing. In other words, the cloud of glory has moved on. I'll go and, and worship God there. In other words, it wasn't about his ministry. It was about what what is the Lord doing? And I think that's a real important thing that we have to be aware of. It isn't about my ministry, or it isn't about this group, or it isn't about this parish. The cloud of glory always moves. We have a God who keeps us on a pilgrimage. And uh, to quote the scriptures, and especially the letter of the Hebrews, that, that if we don't move on in the desert, our bones will bleach. So... Uh, we are not fickle, we don't follow uh, the latest trend, but we do know that, that God uh, God moves on. It, you know, it is, it is the hardest thing in any organization to end <laughs> the organization. Seriously, think about it. You know, we have a, this ministry, we had this great ministry. I remember we had this wonderful youth prayer meeting, hundreds of young people coming, and they all grew up, <laughs> thank God. And uh, pretty soon we had we had 20 people in the congregation and 10 microphones for the choir. And I kept saying, the cloud of glory has moved on. We need to just have a smaller prayer meeting. And, and uh, we don't need 10 microphones. Oh, but they're all coming back. They're all coming back. They've grown up and moved away. They're not coming back. And... Uh, this was this great struggle to, to bring back the glory days of the ministry. That ministry was over. And God had other things for us. You know, if you have backed this thing and, well, it's over. No, it's not. No, it's not. You know, that was Saul. And that's what this passage is about today. Well, let's look at the gospel just briefly. Um, <clears throat> Jesus... Uh, is being swamped in today's gospel. Hearing what he was doing, a large number of people came from Jerusalem, Idumea, Transjordan, Tyre and Sidon, that's Lebanon. Uh, and and uh, he, he had to preach from a boat or they would have shoved him into the water at the, at the, at the Lake of Galilee. Uh, why? Because he, he, had, he healed the sick. And they didn't understand what he was doing. You know, so often we want the Lord for what he can give us instead of who he is and the demons <laughs> they i've often told you the demons are very good theologians whatever unclean spirits saw, saw him they would fall down before him and shout you are the son of god and he warned them sternly not to make him known in other words there were sons of god all over the place or at least people claimed to be the emperor was a son of the gods and everybody was a son of the gods jesus was the son of man in other words, he was this heavenly being from the book of Daniel who came down to earth. And the devil has no problem acknowledging the divinity of Christ, uh, provided he will keep that divinity in heaven where it won't bother anyone else. Governments, they don't mind if you're Christian. It's when you're Christian in the marketplace that they're upset. That when you're Christian, <laughs> like tomorrow for the March for Life, uh, in a public way that they're upset. If you'll just mind your own business and say your prayers and let us uh, run the world, well, that's that's demonic. And and, and uh, this idea that that uh, 
the Son of Man is Jesus refusing to say that he's divine. On the contrary, he's saying, I'm God come to earth. So, all right, I, I want to continue with this, this evangelism business. Evangelism, what does the word evangelism mean? L-E-U is a, a, um, a Greek prefix meaning well or good, like uh, uh, eugenics, which means uh, uh, good birthing, which doesn't mean that at all. Euthanasia, good dying, also doesn't mean that at all. Well, um, <laughs> what's, what's another U? <laughs> euthanasia it doesn't that doesn't refer to young people in the philippines uh you, you know all those you eu um so it means well and eu angelion an angelion is an announcement it is the good announcement and it was a royal proclamation when the messenger came from the king and stood in the town square uh, and said, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, the, we have won a great battle at Thermopylae. You know, this is a, an evangelion, a good news, a, a royal proclamation. Well, what is our royal proclamation? It is the it is the good news of the kingdom. Oh, here we go again with this kingdom stuff. Yeah. Basilea, which I, oh, I keep banging away at this, that, that when I see that, I don't think... I don't think a territory or a political system. I think of a king, the royal nature. Jesus says he came preaching the the gospel, the good news of the royal nature of God. And he said, the, the God's royalness has drawn near to you. The kingdom of God, when we hear the kingdom of God is at hand, it means, oh, that the, it's going to be all wonderful. No, that's not what it means at all. In, in Greek, it literally says God's royal nature has drawn near. In other words, what's the good news? Jesus himself is the good news. When you see the carpenter of Nazareth, when you see the, the, the construction worker named Jesus with the, with the gnarled hands and the uneven shoulder from, from working, that's God's royal nature. And God's royal nature is drawn near to you. The good news is, in fact, that Jesus has come to 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 anyone who will receive him. Uh, somebody wrote me a letter. Uh, I don't know if I read it the other day. That they had always heard um, that the good news was the heart where uh, the kingdom of God was the heart where God was king. And I think that's absolutely true. <sighs> the idea that, that I can approach this, this ultimate royalty, nobody that I am, the, 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 the no one that I am, that's, that is good news that, that the creator of the universe is infinitely and completely interested in me and my well-being and wants to enter into a covenant with me, a relationship. Wow, that's quite quite a thing to hear. So it's the good news of God's royal nature that, that you can, you and I can encounter the very nature of God in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. So Jesus, in a certain sense, himself is the good news. You know, uh, I, I read a letter yesterday in the midst of the computer chaos, which, not good, and thank God, it doesn't seem to be happening yet today. Um, <laughs> the voice just said, ah, 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 don't tempt fate. But that, that, that I, somebody asked about, what is that line in Scripture, the violent bear it away? Well, Jesus said, if you think of the kingdom of God as a place, well, it's being attacked by these violent people. But if you think of it as God's royal nature, the forceful, from the time of John the Baptist until now, the forceful 
have been taking God's royal nature. And he's saying this to people who, who believe, no, no, you gotta be, you gotta be born into it. That, that, um, you know that I'm 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 holy because I'm this nationality. I, I'm I'm a chosen person because I'm in this chosen race. No, no, no. That that you have to lay hold of it. You have to have to lay hold of God's royal nature, and those who want it can take it. Uh, it isn't it isn't part of anyone's inheritance. God's kingdom, God's royalness, is not part of anyone's inheritance. So evangelism. I, I probably shared this with you yesterday, and I'll share it with you a hundred more times. The best definition I've ever heard of evangelism is to bring people to the saving knowledge of Jesus, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. To bring people to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the good news. And the good news of the kingdom is that that where there is Jesus, the kingdom, this, this royalness of God is drawn near. All right, we're going to take a break. We will come back with letters, and you can call in. We'll open the phones at 888 914 Well, I'm sitting alone. The Relevant Radio Studio Line is sponsored by Catholic Order of Foresters. Information about employment opportunities and their flexible premium life insurance plans available at relevantradio.com slash forester. Oh, well, I want to be ready. I want to be ready. I want to be ready to walk in Jerusalem just like John. Walk in Jerusalem just like John. Oh, John said the city was just for square. And he declared. This is uh, Nat King Cole singing gospel music, walking in Jerusalem. Uh, That's uh, it's a neat old gospel song. I like neat old gospel music, so it's it's neat. Um, It's just in some ways this may sound odd. I find it similar to chant. I do, uh, because these were actually meant to be chanted and uh, and uh, to relieve the the what's the word the the um, the sorrows of slavery. So, all right. Well, let's go to letters. Okay. Um, <clears throat> Was that live? I don't know. <laughs> And the, no, the voice in my head just made a trumpet sound. It, it sounded more like a kazoo. No offense. All right. What if this is, uh, this is from Brett. What if Pilate had chosen to free Jesus against the pressure of the mob and did not have him crucified? Was this a possibility? Did Pilate have free will in that situation? Was there a backup plan for salvation if that was the case? You know, these questions are always kind of interesting because it didn't happen. Um, that that um, okay. Let me let me let me speculate on this, um, which is uh, speculating. Uh, say that again. The voice might the fifth symphony music. No, no, we don't need the fifth symphony. We don't need the. I'm not. This is not going to be a Teutonic tirade. Free will. Uh, this is a big question. Good old free will. Uh, I maintain that 
free will is the very basis of Catholicism. I really do. I really do. Because the, the, if God is love, then there's got to be freedom. If I'm forced to love someone, it isn't love. The very bedrock of, of love is freedom. If I am forced to love you, I cannot love you. We have bad names for people who try to force people to love them. You can't do it. So I, I think that that is, is an important thing to, to, to remember. Now, did Pilate have free will? Well, he was incredibly powerful. Uh, yeah, he did have free will. Well, what would have happened if, if he had not given into the pressure of the mob? Well, perhaps the mob would have taken things into their own hands. I don't know. And to say what would happen, what would happen if the alternate history things, I almost think those are counterproductive to think about. Um, let's think about what Pilate did. Pilate uh, you know, Pilate ended up, uh, historically, Pilate ended up committing suicide. Uh, it's very interesting. Judas committed suicide and Pilate committed suicide. Pilate committed suicide because he was told to do so by the Roman emperor. As far as I, the history that I've read said, um, the Romans, uh, if you were, if you were convicted or if you were charged by something with something by the emperor, uh, you would most certainly be convicted. But if you committed suicide, chances are that at least a good portion of your estate would go to your heirs. So Pilate, Pilate was, a, was a terrible, terrible administrator. He was a shyster. He was a, a notorious uh, crook when it came to uh, monetary policy, um, supposedly. Uh, these, these are things, of course, much of it comes to us through people who didn't like Pilate. But but he ended up committing suicide. And the scripture says, touch not the Lord's anointed. But Pilate did this in order to curry favor with Caesar. So Pilate acted with eminent freedom. He chose himself over the truth uh, and and uh, over the, the promptings of his, his wife. So, yeah, he had, he, had, he had free will. And God doesn't have backup plans. <laughs> you know, when you talk about God and a backup plan... God doesn't think. God knows. I have to think. I have to guess at the future. History is all laid out for God. Well, doesn't that mean it's all predestined? No. To know something is going to happen doesn't mean to cause it. Think about that. To know something is going to happen does not mean that you're going to cause it. So the Lord knew that this was Pilate's choice and the Lord allowed him that freedom because for the Lord to have denied, couldn't God just say, you know, why would God create someone knowing they'd go to hell? Because the possibility of love uh, and the possibility of freedom is the highest uh, of God's desires. And he will not force us to be, um, to be good. You know, it's, it's amazing to me, perhaps you've heard me say this before, that we have a humble God. Think about that. Our religion preaches a humble God. That, that, that we believe that Jesus is a divine person with a human, perfect, with a completely human nature and a completely uh, uh, human, uh, uh, 
and a completely divine nature, so he's human and divine in his natures, but he's a divine person. The idea that we could nail God's hands to the cross, and and I, I think I've shared this with you many times, that, that I was saying Mass one hot summer day, and the fruit flies kept dive-bombing the chalice, and I said to the Lord, couldn't you convince the flies of this great miracle for just a moment? And the little voice inside said, with my hands nailed to the wood of the cross, I was a feast for the flies. To think that human beings could nail the hand that set the universe to spinning to a piece of wood so that it could not even swipe the flies from its face is astonishing. This idea that, that we can tie God. You can bind God in your life. Well, God's going to do his will. No, he's not. God is not going to insist on his own will. I'm going to insist on my will. But that's the amazing thing about the God we worship. He doesn't insist on his own will prevailing. Uh, why? Why not? He could make everybody happy. Yeah, but he couldn't. He, not that he couldn't, but that he wouldn't make everybody loving. I have to do that out of my own human freedom, the freedom given me by God. I, I think that's a very important thing to understand. Okay, let's see here. Did I do this one? Yeah, I did. Uh, this is uh, the one about the, the violent Barrett away uh, from Mary um, uh, in in uh, Minneapolis. So again, Mary, thanks for that. Uh, see, <laughs> the violent, it's a, we could do a book club. And the voice in my head's questioning me about a book club. We probably could do it. Uh, let's see here. Now, this is uh, a letter from Enrique. I, uh, did I? Did I? Uh, ah, yes, this is from Enrique. And uh, uh, hello, Enrique, if you're listening. I don't know if I answered this, but I'll answer it again today because it's a good letter. In today's gospel, that's a few days ago, the disciples are allowed to pick grain to eat during the Sabbath, and our Lord justifies their action. I can't understand what the difference is between Jesus relativizing the Sabbath law versus the revital, the relativization that goes on in our culture today. First of all, did the Mosaic Law really prohibit that act activity, or was it just an interpretation the Pharisees made? Secondly, when is it appropriate to interpret a commandment differently from the literal sense? We can justify not following the commandments under pretty much any given circumstance, and we often do, don't you think? Enrique, this is a very... Um, what's the word? A very uh, savvy letter. Uh, first of all, did Mosaic Law really prohibit that activity, or was it just an interpretation that the Pharisees made? It was a Pharisaic interpretation, uh, primarily. Now, uh, modern Judaism uh, is more properly uh, called Rabbinic Phariseeism, and the Pharisees were a, a valiant people. They were heroic. We often use the word Pharisee in a, in a pejorative sense, and we shouldn't, uh, because the Pharisees were and are great people. My, my friend Rabbi Lefkowitz, may he rest in peace, always introduced himself as a Pharisee. <laughs> Especially when he was talking to a, a Catholic girl school audience, they would all kind of gasp, he's a Pharisee. The Pharisees were the ones who preserved their culture, their religion, their devotion to God, and their identity under <clears throat> these assaults. And the Pharisees were, they were the liberals. <laughs> the Sadducees were the conservatives. We'll take care of religion. You just pay, pray, and obey. Don't do this at home. But the Pharisees believed that everyone should participate in the 
and the rules of purity that applied to the temple. Now, Rabbi Lefkowitz would have disagreed with this. He would have said, no, it's always been, these rules are from time immemorial. But most scholars would say that the, the Pharisees identified the 613 laws of the Torah, which really weren't codified until the Middle Ages. Uh, by, I believe Maimonides uh, codified them. But the 613 laws were observed. And uh, the Pharisees believed that even the strictest of the laws applied to every single Israelite. This, the Sadducees would have said, no, they really apply in their strictest uh, interpretation to us because we're the ones who will go into the temple and intercede for the people and we are the guardians of religion. The rest of you do your best, you know, uh, don't avoid unclean foods and, you know, you know, a mouse falls into the clay bowl and it becomes impure. Well, maybe you want to break it, maybe you don't. We would, because we have to be pure. We're the priests. Well, uh, it was a control. Well, the Pharisees said that, that the business of the temple was every Israelite's business. But then they thought of ways to get around the rules that were impossible. For instance, uh, it's clear that to draw water on a Sabbath is work. Uh, if you've ever had to schlep some water up from a well, it's heavy. Oh, dear. What if you need water on a Sabbath? Well, if you have a bucket that's in the well, and there's a rope attached to the bucket, and you tie the rope around your waist, well, you're really just putting on your belt. If you walk away from the well and the water follows, well, <laughs> you know, that that they really did that sort of thing. I, I've seen them do it. Uh, you can't carry keys on the Sabbath. That's a burden. However, if you have them attached to a stretchy belt, they're just part of your clothing. And I remember watching Levy, uh, the, the rabbi's son, locking up the synagogue in a very bad neighborhood, which you had to do. And he had the stretchy belt with the keys on it. And, and so this they really did this, but it was, they called it putting a hedge about the law. And so they would define uh, work. You know, if you're in your house and you take something off the, the shelf and you eat it, that's not work, it's eating. Well, that's how, the, how Jesus and, and his disciples looked at it. They were just picking uh, grain in the field. The Pharisees had defined it differently. So it was partly Pharisaic uh, definition. Now, there were 613 of these laws. And 603 of them fell into, the Ten Commandments are, are part of those 613 laws. The 603 uh, fall into three different categories. Interpretations or applications of the Ten Commandments, which are binding on us. Liturgical laws, how to conduct the sacrifices of the temple and what the high priest wears and all that sort of thing. And then I can't think of the word in Hebrew for it. It's a great word. It means nonsense. Or not nonsense. Uh, oh, is it, I think it's chukim, uh, the chukim, which are the laws that in our interpretation make no sense. And they are simply there because God is God. And what they do, the effect of it is to keep the Israelites away from other people. Like you should not uh, mix cotton and wool in the same garment. That's uh, that's that's a hook. Uh, why? Because God said so. And uh, well, the Pharisaic interpretation would be thus: you have to have two looms, one for vegetable fiber and one for animal fiber. 
That was the interpretation. 603 of those laws, we believe, passed away with the coming of the Messiah because those were rules that taught us how to walk. That's what they're called, halakhic law, how we should walk in the world. Now the Messiah, Jesus, is our halak. He's the one who teaches us how to walk in the world. He is the Torah, the law, come to life. We don't need these examples or these restrictions when we have him. So 603 of the commandments have passed away. Ten have not, because those ten are the very reflections of the nature of God and the true nature of humanity. In other words, uh, the first three are clearly about our relationship to God. But then comes the, the, the fourth, honor your father and your mother. St. Paul says, I fall on my knees to the father of Jesus, from whom every fatherhood in heaven and on earth receives its name. Parenthood comes from God. Uh, thou shalt not kill. God is the giver of life. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not uh, commit adultery. God is faithfulness. God is, is a marriage covenant with humanity. Uh, thou shalt not steal. Uh, uh, God is, is, is the provider of all things. God is generosity. Thou shalt not bear false witness. God is truth. Thou shalt not covet either thy neighbor's goods or thy neighbor's relationships and spouse. God is grace. To covet things, to covet relationships, is to say that God has not been fair with me. God is the giver of grace. These reflect the very nature of God, and thus are eternal and cannot pass away. They also reflect the true nature of humanity. That if you're a parent, you want your kids to respect you and learn from you. So you should treat your parents uh, just as you would not have someone try to kill you. You should not kill someone just as you do not want to be stolen from. You should not steal just as you don't want to be gossiped about or, or, or wished ill because of your relationships or your possessions. So you should not gossip or wish ill to others. What you hope for yourself, you should hope for others. You should see the common humanity and the common love of God for all humanity in other people. So the commandments reflect the fullness of human nature. Those Ten Commandments cannot pass away. The 603 other laws uh, um, are abrogated by the coming of the Messiah, we believe. So, so yes, this... this um, we say, well, if they could pick grain on the Sabbath, why can't I <laughs> fool around and steal and cheat on my spouse? Oh, because one is, is, is a ritual law an interpretation of a ritual law. The other is a reflection of the true nature of humanity and the true nature of God. So I hope that answers your question, Enrique. We're going to go to a break. We'll come back with a word of the day. And then we'll open the phones at 888-914-9149. Again, that's 888-914-9149. We shall return, God willing, and the computers cooperate. May the Lord bless you real good. May the Lord bless you real good. Amen. May the Lord bless you real good. The grammar may not be good, but the sentiment is. All right. Let us now go to the word of the day. I've just been thinking about unity and uniformity. They are not the same thing. Uniformity means one in appearance. Unity means one in being. And uh, so often we think that uniformity 
uh, is the same thing as unity, and it is not. Um, you know that that to me one of the glorious things about the faith is that one size does not fit all. We have what is it twenty something different rites of in the of the liturgy in in the church today and all that sort of thing. Um, everybody kind of wants everything to be on the same page, and it is. Remember that 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 the page may be in different languages. You know, just think about that. Unity and uniformity are not the same thing. And for me to look at you and say that you must not be right because you don't look like me, well, that's a kind of idolatry. I'm always opposed to idolatry, unless, of course, I'm the one committing it. But um, I joke, I joke. Uh, remember, John seventeen twenty one that all of them may be one, as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. How often do I tell you the most important word in the Bible is as? You know, Jesus doesn't tell us to love one another. He says, love one another as I have loved you. Uh, forgive us our sins as we forgive. So as is a big word. And um, the way that the Father and the Son are united, uh, that's how he wants us to be one. And they were united in complete love for one another, not in uniformity. That that Jesus said, who sees me, sees the Father. He wasn't saying that the Father looks like me, but that there's a resemblance that's deeper. You know, that Jesus looked like a human being, and God cannot be seen by anyone. As Scripture tells us, no one has seen God. Well, we believe that we have in seeing the person of Jesus, but... Uh, the vision of God uh, still awaits us. I understand that as that the Jesus and the Father did not appear the same way to human eyes, but they were perfectly one. And the only way that the world is going to know, uh, let me finish this, uh, that y you, Father, in me, and I am in you, may they also be in us, that the world may know that you sent me. In other words, the only way that the world is going to come to know Christ is by seeing us. And we're not given that good an example these days. All right, let's go to the phones. Hello? Hello? <laughs> Jeff from Illinois, what can I do for you? Good afternoon, Father. I've uh, listened to you a number of times over the last few weeks, and it popped into my mind to go back and read the... Um, um, excuse me, the article that you wrote back in 2010 about a reflection on mm -hmm. the liturgy celebrated ad orientum, the, mm -hmm. uh, new, yeah. the, excuse me, the ordinary form. And yeah. it, it came to me that you would possibly go to my parish priest and ask him if uh, he would consider celebrating the Mass in that manner. Um, and I just wanted to ask you, do you think that that would be disobedient uh, to to, uh, to take that action? Well, it depends, uh, you know, that the, the rubrics uh, do seem to uh, assume that the Novus Ordo Mass is uh, is uh, more properly than ad-oriented versus dominum turned toward the Lord. However, uh, this whole axe I've been grinding in First Samuel 15 is that obedience is better than sacrifice. That if you are in a diocese where the where the bishop has asked that the Mass be said versus populum turned toward the people it is more pleasing to god it may be more pleasing to me or to you to have mass said ad orientum or versus dominum but it is not more pleasing to god to disobey the bishop so um that 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 um i i really mean this quite sincerely that that we need to take first samuel the 15th chapter seriously 
that that if the bishop has asked us to do something and it is not necessarily immoral that we must obey the only the only condition uh, in which we should disobey a, a legitimate religious superior is when he asks us to do something that is clearly a violation of moral law, such as, uh, I want you to go steal a million dollars for me. I don't know any bishop who's ever said that, uh, certainly not to me. Uh, that would be different. But if he asks us to do something which is, which is uh, under his authority, such as the liturgy, then it is more pleasing to God that we obey the bishop. And um, if we disagree with the bishop, that's one thing. But we still must obey the bishop. Now, if you're in a diocese where it is permitted and you ask the priest and he says, oh, I'll give it a, a shot, that's fine. If he's in a diocese where the bishop has has said, I would like you to say that mass versus popolum, then <laughs> you, you should encourage the priest to obey his bishop. So I, I genuinely mean that. And I think that, that before we, we decide this is what we need to do, we need to read and take to heart the 15th chapter of the first book of Samuel. So I hope that answers your question. I don't think it's disrespectful, but I think if, if, uh, <coughs> excuse me, if the bishop has spoken, then, then this is, this is, um, this is something that, that, uh, I don't, Think that the will of the bishop is necessarily the will of God, but it is the will of God that we obey the bishop. So uh, uh, I, I think that that's a very important thing to be mindful of. And why a bishop has said one thing or another thing, I don't know, because God in his mercy has not made me a bishop. It's a tough gig. I've known some bishops, and boy, they don't sleep that well. They are in constant uh, anxiety, as St. Paul says, for the flock. So I hope that helps a little, and, um, you know, uh, understand that, that uh, you know, whether the Mass is versus Domen or versus Populum, uh, it, it, it's still the unbloody representation of the sacrifice of Christ. So um, I think that it's very important that we, you know, that God has, God has given us bishops for a reason, and uh, I, I'm grateful for their ministry, and grateful that, that I've never been called to it, because it is a difficult ministry. We should pray for our bishops, especially in these difficult days. All right, well, thanks for calling, and thanks for listening. Whom do we have now, dear voice in my head? Tina from Austin, Texas. Uh, what can I do for you, Tina? Well, um, I was—I uh, saw a recent quote from St. Charbel said, Family is the image of God, and I've always uh, wondered yes. why there was two creation stories, and I've put two and two together uh, that— wasn't that kind of the images of family is the one where it's a man and woman? And then also Adam, when he was originally created, he was in sanctifying grace with God. So he was in the family yeah. of God. And so yeah. the two creation stories actually reveal uh, the image of God as family. That's a very good point. And I thought, well, then that makes sense to have two creation stories. That's a very good point. And I would I would add to it that the first creation story, the most important thing about the story is the number seven. That that the Sabbath was the culmination of creation, and the word seven is closely related to the Hebrew word for to swear an oath. So the the idea of seven is an idea of the covenant, and marriage is a covenant. So in a sense, uh uh the the uh uh, the seven days of creation are about the marriage of God with humanity. Uh, 
that the very creation is kind of a, a marriage gift. I heard a wonderful story that, that the rabbis tell about, uh, you know, that, that man was created on the sixth day with the beasts. And I think most women would agree with that. And there's a period between the, the sixth day of the week and the seventh, the twilight. Remember, the Hebrew day begins at sundown, a little after sundown, about an hour. There's that twilight, which is neither Friday nor Saturday. And when do you go to sleep? When it gets dark. So Adam fell asleep. Uh, Adam, Adam fell asleep. And, and uh, uh, when he was asleep, God took the rib from his side. And when he woke up on Saturday morning, the day of the Sabbath, that there she was, you know, God's Sabbath gift to him. So this idea of seven days of creation, the idea of Sabbath, this is, this is, that's a very good insight on your part, because this is a marital symbol. You follow? It's a, it's a familial symbol. And, and, and uh, uh, I think it's very powerful. It's, it's interesting. The synagogue, on Friday night, they sing a wonderful song, Lechado uh, Di, uh, uh, Come, my, my dear friend, let us greet the Sabbath as a bride. And they all turn and look at the door of the, of the synagogue. And, and they're welcoming the Sabbath as a bride. So, so this family life is supposed to be a, a taste of heaven. And, uh, of course, <laughs> we don't do it that way most of the time. But, but in a, its own imperfect way, the Sabbath uh, or the family uh, imitates um, uh, this divine life of God. And as St. John Paul the Great said, that... that uh, God is the perfect family, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and our destiny is to become part of that family. So, yeah, that's. I think you're absolutely on target there with that. Any other thoughts on it? Well, also for the soul, um, like with Adam when he was originally, God said, "Make man in my in His image." The second story mm-hmm. with yeah. when He created yeah. Adam. That on a yes. spiritual basis, the soul that uh, that the. The life of the soul is God. It's like the life of the body yeah. is the soul, and the life of the soul is God. But that's kind of the yeah. family in terms of God union with the soul. Yeah. Yeah, this is, this is, and you know, I love the Jeff Cavins uh, Great Adventure Bible Study. I always say that's the very best Bible study for the beginning Bible student because he says it's about the story of a family, the family of Jesus, all the way back to Adam. And you read 14 books of the Bible and get the basic timeline. And uh, uh, the timeline is uh, uh, this family into which we're adopted by the sacraments. So the, 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 the timeline of salvation history is the history of my family, the family into which I've been adopted by sacraments. So I think, I think that's a, a, a very beautiful, beautiful thing. And if you look through the Bible, it's all about families. It really is. And uh, we aren't about families. We're about the rugged individual. And I think that we need to understand, great, great and low alike, the church is meant by God and seen by God as a family. And uh, we need to treat her like that and be kind and forbearing with one another, just as Drew always is. 